morning, church. It is very good to be with you this morning. More ways than you might realize. Uh, so thankful for my family being here this morning in a more number sort of way. Uh, covet your prayers. We've got a very busy week ahead. Uh, now that we've got Audrey and Jonathan home, we'll uh, have Emily Monday, Lord willing. Tuesday we'll have the McDougals, and then Friday we'll lose Ab and Nathan. Uh, but just for a little while, and they'll be back after a week or so. But anyway, we've got a busy week. I've got to uh, marry my daughter off myself. I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, Rob might have to uh, take over. I may collapse in sheer uh, mourning and sorrow. Rob's going to be right there for me in case I can't go. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to give her away while Rob does that, and then Lord willing, I'll uh, take the pulpit and walk with him through that time. But anyway, it's a good time. So thankful for what the Lord's doing in our family's life, and just can't wait to see what He holds in the future. We find ourselves in Romans 8 this morning, and like I said, this is uh, the mountaintop of the book of Romans. Uh, I don't know of finer passages uh, I say that and I hesitate because we walk through the book of Hebrews as well. Uh, certainly some glorious passages, but uh, these are right up there. And anytime you get into the Word of God, especially if you're teaching or preaching the Word of God, you have to discover the path that the Holy Spirit is taking through the text. If you don't figure out His path, you're on the wrong path and you're going to easily turn this thing into your thing and preach or teach the message that you want rather than the message that the Holy Spirit intended for us to teach and understand from the Word of God. Now, I'll tell you, the purpose of these passages is not a theological education. Even though we find ourselves in arguably the most theologically rich section that you'll find in the Scriptures where we get soteriology 101, if you will, the doctrine of your salvation, we find that in these passages Paul is not teaching a seminary class. Paul is trying to ground our hope. And he's doing it in the works of God. And you're supposed to walk away with these, from these passages with such a solid hope and understanding of what God has done on our behalf. These are meant to encourage us like no other passages. These are meant to bless us. So unless you walk away from, or if you walk away from that kind of understanding, just being overjoyed at what God has done for you, I've done my job. If you walk away from these passages arguing with one another about theology, I have not done my job. I've just done the very thing that I don't think Paul was intending for us to do with these passages. Now, I put some notes in here that I've jumped over, but I do want to go back to because I'm really convinced that if we understand what Paul is really wanting to do with these verses, then we'll understand Paul when he says these words. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I can lead us to where we're so encouraged that we welcome death like he is our best friend, I've done my job. Because if we can understand what glory awaits for us, when we meet death, we'll shake his hand and ask him where he's been. Because we really want to share in the glory of our Savior for all eternity. Folks, these are some wonderful things. Wonderful things. And I am so limited as a man 
to speak about these things. I can tell you that right now. But knowing all of that, these passages have been hijacked by the devil and used to create so much division within the church. We fight over the very passages that were meant to give us the greatest confidence and joy. And when you realize that, you just crumble down into tears realizing what has taken place and what we have done rather than what should have been done. Now, I want to follow Paul's style. You know Paul's style. If you read the Word of God, you know it's like every time Paul begins to speak, he's standing in a courtroom. I mean, this is, even recognized by the world, one of the most intelligent men of all time. And so when he writes, he is writing in a watertight method as if he was defending his case before a jury. So I really want to try to stick to his path. If you'll notice in verse 22, we have the word for, for we know. And then he comes back to it in verse 24, for in hope. And then in verse 25, 29, rather, for those whom he foreknew. So he keeps using for, 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 or the word because, 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 because he's stacking argument on top of argument that should be obvious conclusions. I mean, really the jury should be able to finish Paul's argument. He's been so careful to walk from point to point to stack it up carefully. And then he comes to what would I see as almost his closing argument with two profound questions. Notice the first question in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And then verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, it's just as if, I hate to use the illustration of Perry Mason, but I can't think of a, a, a better lawyer. Uh, that's what he's done. He's turned to the jury and he's asked him two questions. Now tell me who. Who can, who can stand against the Lord? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And all the jurors would be shaking their head, no one. Absolutely no one. Now, what's interesting here, though, Paul may have been Baptist because he's landed this thing, and then he picks it back up because he's got to answer the question, what about the Jews? And it takes him three chapters to do that. So he goes 9 and 10 and 11 because he's got to deal with the Jews, and then he gets to his doxology. If you'll notice 1136, he finally lands the plane, and he leaves it in the hands of the jurors. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's what we really should see at the end of chapter 8. But we don't see it because somebody he knows has one more question and he's got to deal with that question and then he'll set the plane down. So we've got a little bit more work to do, quite a bit more work to do in 9, 10, and 11. But let's at least land it in chapter 8, hopefully this morning. And see what Paul's talking about. Now I told you verse 24 is absolutely key to understanding chapter 8. Go back with me to Romans 8 and look, look at verse 24. Paul can say much, so much with such few words, it's absolutely amazing. For in hope we have been saved. And I told you he goes from past tense to future tense in just those few words. We have been saved. Aorist, simple, past tense. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been saved. It is settled. But at the same time, he precedes those words with this phrase, for in hope, and hope looks forward. So in other words, Paul says you have been saved 
in a forward perspective in hope. In the sphere of, and if I had on a board and we were on a Wednesday night, I'd draw a circle around you have been saved. And I'd put you right in the middle of that circle. And I would tell you that in that circle or in that sphere, there are two things about your hope. And this is what we talked about last week. There are two things about your hope that you got to know. The first thing is, is your attitude in hope. That we have an eager anticipation welled up within our hearts. An excitedness that we look for the appearing of our Savior in the sky. We just peel our eyes toward the sky waiting to see His face. That's that subjective attitude of hope that we have. And that's the part that waxes and wanes and we have to encourage one another to get our eyes up to fill ourselves with hope and set our eyes on the appearing of our Lord Jesus and Savior. But there's another side of hope. It's the objective hope. It's the concrete side. It's the things in which we hope for. Those are eternal truths. That's why our hope is so precious to us. There are the things that God has accomplished. They're not going anywhere. So therefore, it's not a hope so. We hope in things that have been done and accomplished by the one who created the heavens and the earth. Our hope is absolutely eternally secure. Now, out of all of those things that I said that we hoped for, I want to roll all those things up into one word and tell you the one thing that we hope for can be summed up in the word glory. We have a hope for glory. And those are the words that precede what Paul says in verse 24, in hope we have been saved. Follow along with me in verse 17 and you'll see what I'm talking about. Romans 8 verse 17, if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Christ so that we may also be glorified with Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Down in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God and then in verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. In other words, this is what I said. We look forward to seeing hope. We look forward to sharing in hope. We look forward to possessing hope as the children of God. There's nothing for us but hope. And that hope is in glory. And that's why I say when you meet death, you ought to shake his hand because he's about to introduce you to the very thing that you've longed for your entire lives, glory. So this is what Paul's doing. This is how he's encouraging us. This is his argument. And I told you last week, my argument was the thing in which we hope for is absolutely certain because we hope in the promises of God. But I, I want to step that up. It's more than that. Not only do we hope in the promises of God, we hope in the will of God. And once I realized that, oh, I'm like, that's better. We don't just hope in the promises of God. We hope in the purposes of God. So let me ask you this question. How certain are we that God will accomplish His will? I mean, are we certain about that or not? And really, that's a question about sovereignty. Do we think that God is sovereign? 
Now, when I talk about sovereign, what that means is, is that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and responsible for not only creating all things, but determining all things. In other words, the sovereignty of God is this. God does what He wants, when He wants, and how He wants. Do we believe that? Surely we all do. Cody took us to Isaiah 46, I think it was this past Wednesday night, and read to us verse 10, and this is a clear declaration of the sovereignty of God. This is what Isaiah said, speaking in the Spirit, forming the very words of God. Isaiah writes, I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's what God says. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So what I submit to you this morning is our hope is in God's good pleasure. Our hope is in God's will. Our hope is in God's purpose. Now, do we think that God is able to accomplish His purposes? And we emphatically answer that, you better believe it. You see how solid your hope is this morning. It's awesome. I mean, you can get to the end of these passages where he says in verse 38 that I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing nor any other created thing, right? Those are the sort of things that cannot remove your hope and he just listed everything. There's absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of us realizing our hope. Because again, they are in the promises, the will, the purpose of God. Now, what follows is the answer to what is the will of God or what is the purpose of God. Now, I, I hate how we generalize that question. Because we walk around as if we're trying to discover the will of God or the purpose of God. And as Christians, let me say, that's pretty silly. We shouldn't do that. In fact, it flows for us in the text if you'll notice with me in verse 27, where Nathan began reading for us this morning, He who searches the hearts, in other words, God, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the what? Will of God. Notice verse 28. And we know that God causes all things, top on top, every single solitary thing, to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to what? His purpose. So we just named His will, and the Spirit is working toward the will of God. Then He named His purpose, and God is constantly working toward His purpose. And then He reveals to us what is the will and what is the purpose. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom He predestined, He called. These whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He what? Back to glory. He glorified. Our hope is in glory. God's will, God's purpose is to glorify us. Therefore, our hope rests securely in the will and in the purposes of God. They cannot go anywhere. So what I just read to you, though, in verses 29 and 30 is known as the golden chain of salvation, the unbreakable chain, the golden chain. And what I want to do this morning is walk through that chain, but I want to start in reverse order because I've spent all this time emphasizing glory. 
So let me start at the end. And basically, since Paul has formed this phrase or, or these two verses in this way, they're absolutely symmetrical. He uses the same verb tense, the same verb voice, and the same verb mood for five verbs. It is meant to be symmetrical. Therefore, we can understand the five actions of God because God is doing all five things to bring us to glory. So let's start with the end, and I'll simply ask you the questions. Number one, in the end of verse uh, 30, he also glorified. Who is it that glorifies? They're pretty simple questions. Who glorifies? God does. Notice he. It's even capital H for you. This is what God is doing. He is the one who glorifies. Now it's in an aorist tense and it's in a past tense. And the reason for that is symmetry. Because as we walk up through these things, you will see that this is what God has already done. And you're like, God hasn't glorified this. God hasn't glorified us as of yet. But in the text, yes, he has. It's as good as done because it certainly will be. Our hope is what God says I've already accomplished. Therefore, he also glorifies, I have done it, he says. Now that begs the question, if God is glorified, what does it mean to be glorified? Now I know that you can answer this, but it's answered all over the pages of Scripture. Let me read you just a couple of passages before I bring us back to the text. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. This is how Paul describes it here. You don't have to turn there. If you're taking notes, just drop down 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Paul writes this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So when I tell you that it is God who glorifies us, what that means is God is the one who gives us our heavenly body. Now, what's it going to be like? 1 John 3, 2 tells us this, Beloved, we are the children of God. It has not yet appeared to us as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. In other words, we'll be just like Christ. Which is the very thing that Paul has just said in verse 29. Notice verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his Son. That's what it means to be glorified. We are going to be made just like Jesus. We are going to receive a glorified body. Now, let me ask you this one, and I know that you already know the answer to that, but who is glorified? Now, the reason that I want to ask you this question is because I want you to see it's a very particular group of people. Not everyone is glorified. Notice verse 30. These whom he justified at the last part of the verse, he also glorified. Which means there's only a particular group of people that are going to be glorified. And these are the people who have been justified. Now we walk into our second phrase and our second word, and as I said, all five words, it's perfect symmetry. Same verb tense, same verb voice, same verb mood. So here's my question. 
Who is it that justifies? Look at verse 30. These whom He, capital H. Who's doing the action here? God is doing the action. What is the action? Justified. It's in a past tense. It is something that God is doing. What does it mean to be justified? Well, we've been talking about that for months. This is Romans 3 through 5. And to sum up all those chapters with just a few words, we are justified through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. Because we're all undone before Him. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all under the wrath of God. We all are going to suffer condemnation. And then God sends His Son. And it is the Son who takes our sin upon Himself. He goes to the cross and suffers our punishment. He dies in our place. And therefore, God the Father looks at the sacrifice of the Son, accepting His sacrifice as satisfying the requirements of the law. And therefore, He looks at us who are guilty and He declares us innocent. And it does not violate the law because the punishment of God has been poured out for sinners. Except He didn't pour it out on us. He poured it out on His Son. Therefore, God is the one who has justified us. You know these things. You'll never stand before the Father with any sort of excuse. You'll never stand before the Father with any sort of good work. You'll never stand before the Father with any argument that you're a good and decent person. You'll stand before the Father under the wrath of God, and your only hope is the justifying blood of the Son of God. And if you've had faith in that blood, you are eternally justified, made right with the Heavenly Father. It is God who does this work, and it is God alone. God is the one who justifies. Now who? Who is the one who justifies? Or who is the one who is justified? Now the reason I ask you that question is because the text answers that question. Look at verse 30 halfway through. These whom He called, He also justified. It's limited. Not everyone's justified. There's only a particular group of people who stand justified before the Father, and that group of people is known as the ones who are called. It's limited. So again, look at the text, and let me go through our same questions that I'm going through. Who is it that calls? Look at verse 30, right in the middle. He called, capital H. We know who's doing this work. It is God the Father that is doing this work, and God the Father alone. It is God who calls. Now, we've got to deal with this word a little bit more than we deal with normal words because we recognize in the text that there are two calls. And we've talked about this before. There is the general call and there's the effectual call. So we've got to decide which call is this speaking about in the text. Now, the general call comes from who? It's man's call. And I thought about in the text where my favorite calls are that are general calls to all people. And my favorite one in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what's not bread? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what's good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. 
There's your Old Testament call. Why don't you repent and believe? Why don't you put your faith in Christ? I beg you, turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will dine on the glory of God forever. Now that's a pretty good call. That's a wonderful call. That's a true call and it's awaiting your answer. My favorite New Testament call comes to in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul writes these words. Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's a pretty good call. That's a good call for the summary of every sermon. I beg you, turn your life to the Lord Jesus. But the problem with that call is I'm making that call. And you need God to make that call. Because when God makes the call, it's an effectual call. It has its intended effect. In fact, if you'll look over in the next chapter in Romans 9 in verse 23, you'll see an example of an effectual call. And notice what it says there. And he, God, did so to make known the riches of his glory upon a particular people, vessels of mercy. These vessels which he prepared beforehand for what? Glory. There it is again. Even us whom he also called... Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. He's talking about a particular group of people that came out of the Jews and a particular group of people that came out of the Gentiles and he refers to them as the called. And the reason that he refers to them as the called is because when God called, they came. And they came and bought wine and milk without money and without cost. They came to the glory of God. They turned from their sins because God called their name and they came forth. So when you look at back at Romans 8, it's pretty easy to understand. Verse 30, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. That's effectual. There's no question about it. It's not general at all. Everyone God calls, God justifies. Everyone God justifies, God glorifies. It's not hard math. And again, God's doing the action. And it's effectual action, and it's on a particular group of people. Who gets called? That's the question. Well, look at the text. Look at what he says. Verse 30, very beginning. These whom he predestined, he also called. Now we make it to our first difficult word. But let's stay with our pattern and we'll be fine. Here's my question. Who predestines? Look at the text. Capital H. Perfect symmetry. He's the one who does it. It's in the same exact same verb tense. It's in the exact same verb voice. It's in the exact same verb mood. God is the one who predestines. It is the very action of God, even presented, as I said, in a past tense. Now, here's the question. What does it mean to be predestined? This word is used six times in your Bible. Praarizo. I can show you if you want it in my notes. I'll give it to you. But the word means simply to decide beforehand or to predetermine. Pra means before. Arizo is your determination. God determines beforehand. These whom he predestines, he calls. He whom he calls, he justifies. These that he justifies, he glorifies. Now, let me give you an example of this word that is beyond this, Romans Eight, so we can understand the word better. Acts 4.27. You'll see it very clearly in Acts 4.27. Peter is speaking. Actually, Peter is preaching. And this is what he says. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now we know just from that simple illustration what predestined means. God decided beforehand, actually from eternity past, that His Son would be delivered over into the hands of men and He would be crucified on a cross. Jesus was crucified from eternity past. So we understand what it means to be predestined. God predetermined exactly what was going to happen to the Son. He did not look throughout time and space to see what would happen. That is a violation of the Word and a violation of every single usage of the Word. God determined beforehand that Jesus was going to die on a cross before He ever set one star in the sky. Now, here's the question. What are we predestined to? We know what that means. The answer to that comes in verse 29. Notice, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, here comes your answer, become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God decided beforehand that there would be a particular people that would be conformed to the image of the son. Now, if you'll notice, this is a very important word. This is the only word that interrupts the whole chain. Every other word comes in exactly the same fashion without breaking the chain. And the word predestined breaks the chain just for a moment. And then he snatches the link right back on. And you need to understand how important this word is. Notice how the chain breaks. Because he wants us to understand what we are predestined to. We are predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of the Son? It means to be glorified. What is the purpose of God? What is the will of God? That you might be glorified. But it's bigger than that. God's doing more than that, and that's why He broke the chain. Look at the chain. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son so that... This is why we break the chain. This is the purpose of your glory. So that He, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Why are you and I glorified? In order that the Son might be glorified. That's the only reason. God sought to glorify the Son, and the way that He chose to do it was to glorify sinners. Now, when you and I stand in heaven glorified, by the Father, there will be one that stands before us all. The firstborn one. The one who has led us. And we will all recognize Him as the preeminent, the glorious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why God's done all this? In order to glorify the Son. Now let me ask you this. Why did He want to glorify the Son? Well, let me pull away from my notes for just a second because Jesus tells us in John 17 when he prays right before he goes to Calvary. Because the Lord Jesus says in that prayer, Father, I have glorified you by completing the work you have given me to do. In other words, when we take, talk about the chief end of man, does anyone know the chief end of man? Rob? 
To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That, if you ever want to know why you're here, that's why you're here. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But do you know what? Without the work of God, we would never achieve our goal. We could not. We cannot. We would not glorify God. God did not trust us with His glory, but He did trust someone. He trusted the Son. And the Son achieved, through His work, the glory of the Father. And so watch what God does to fulfill His purpose, His will, His plan. He, through His work, glorifies us that we might stand in glory with one standing in front of everybody. We're all behind here standing in glory, but there's somebody standing way out in front, and that's the Son of God. And because we've been glorified, we glorify the Son, and the Son in turn glorifies the Father, and God has accomplished the goal for all of creation. And that's what our hope rests in. It's so solid. It's so fixed. God will accomplish His purposes. Now here's the problem with this word, because it's an offensive word. So in order to shift the word and pull it off a particular people, they want to say it's just the means. God is going to accomplish His purpose through the means of predestination. It doesn't apply to a particular people. But if we follow our argument and stick with our questions and our pattern, let me ask you, who is it that is predestined? Look at the text. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. It's not a means. If you call it a means, you violated the text. Predestined applies to only a particular group of people. It is not the means to an end. It is a particular people that are going to be glorified. And these are the particular people whom God has predestined to glorify. Now, who are the ones who are predestined? Because that's the big question, right? I mean, who in the world is going to be predestined? Because if they're the ones that are going to be predestined, and they're the ones who are ultimately going to be glorified. Well, look at the text. He answers the question. Look at verse 49. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now we come to the most debated word in your Bible. This is the word that has caused so much division in the church for literally hundreds of thousands, I would say, of years. But I would suggest to you that if we follow the same pattern that I've been following all along, we can figure out exactly what he means. First of all, who is it that foreknows? Look at the text. For those whom he foreknew. In other words, again, we reach our fifth verb, and it is something that God himself and God alone is doing. The verb is in the exact same tense, the exact same voice, the exact same mood. It's in a past tense, and it is an action. This is very important. It is an action of God. God is the one who predestines. God is the one who calls. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who glorifies. And He's doing it upon a particular people. And God is foreknowing in an action sort of sense upon a particular group of people. Now this word... And again, I'll give you my notes. What does this word foreknow mean? Well, it, literally, it's a compound word, prognosco. Gnosko is the word know or knowledge or intimate, personal knowledge, if you will. 
Pra is the word before. I know before. Okay? This word, just like the word predestined, is used six times. Now, this word is a little bit different because out of those six times, twice, this word simply means, in its simple literal sense, I know something beforehand. The other four times, it doesn't simply mean to know beforehand. It means to choose beforehand. So our job here is to decide in this text, is it knowing beforehand or is it choosing beforehand? And I would submit to you, actually, only one of those is an action. Knowing something is not an action. Choosing something is an action. But let's be fair and walk through it. Here's an example in the text of one of the two times that this word foreknow simply means knowledge beforehand. And if you want an example, it's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. I'll read it for you. Peter is talking about the Apostle Paul. And this is what Peter says. In all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things, Paul writes, are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. He uses the word prognosco in the simple sense of knowing something beforehand. Peter says, listen, I'll just go ahead and tell you. Some of Paul's stuff's difficult to understand. And there's those guys out there that want to twist what Paul is saying. And they're going to lead you astray. Since you already know this, be careful. And so we can see how this word can simply mean the understanding of something before something else takes place. Yes? But again... Six times, four times, it's used in reference to choose beforehand. And the example of that comes in Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23, this is what Peter's, Peter says. This man, the Lord Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, hopefully you can see the way Paul frames out that sentence, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God to crucify Jesus did not have anything to do with God knowing something beforehand. It had everything to do with God choosing and determining something beforehand. That's why he puts those two words together, predetermined and foreknowledge of God. In other words, if you're going to allow the word foreknowledge simply to mean knowledge beforehand, God did not plan Calvary. God looked throughout time and space to see that men would crucify the Lord Jesus on Calvary, and therefore he formed his plan around that crucifixion. Now, we all know that's not true. In fact, if that's true, God is more like Thor than he is God. He's not predetermining anything. He's responding to everything. He's not God, and he's not sovereign, and you don't have a hope. But we know God is sovereign, and we know God always accomplishes His will, and we know God predetermined His plan to put His Son on the cross. Therefore, it says in the text that it was according to the foreknowledge of God. God decided beforehand that Pontius Pilate and Herod and sinful and godless men would nail His Son to a tree. That was God's plan. So we've got to, we've got to decide in the text, what's He talking about here? Now, if you choose, back in Romans 8, if you choose verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, to simply mean God knows something, I'm about to stack up your problems. 
First notice, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. If God knew something beforehand, I would argue with you, he knows something beforehand about every man that's ever been born. In other words, why use that statement? That's a useless statement. If you're going to say God knew beforehand about a particular group of people, I tell you God knows beforehand about every person that's ever been born. He knows where, who's going to wind up in heaven. He knows who's going to wind up in hell. So why do you even need to make that statement? We know God is sovereign. We know God knows all things. We know God's not surprised about anything. You might as well said, for we know that God knows the color blue. Why say that? Of course he does. But it doesn't say that, right? It says that he foreknows something about a particular group of people. Now, this is where people like to insert things, right? And they like to insert the word faith. God foreknew that you would exercise your faith. Therefore, he puts you in this process. Let me stack up another problem with that because God's about to use the exact same word and it has nothing to do with God foreknowing any sort of faith. In fact, if you're in Rome, here you are. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 2. Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected His people, meaning Israel or the Jews, whom He foreknew. Same word. Exactly the same word. Let's keep reading. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, says Elijah, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left. They are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to Elijah? I, God says, have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at, a, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Exact same word. Exact same phrase. And it has nothing to do with God foreknowing that Israel will have faith. Brothers and sisters, if you think God looked upon Israel before He selected them and saw that they were going to have faith, you have not read your Old Testament. If you'll remember, God says with most of them He was displeased and they fell in the desert. God did not foreknow Israel was going to be a sterile, stellar, faithful people. Therefore, He set His affections on them. In fact, that's the very reason I'm convinced God chose them. Because they were so stubborn and stiff-necked to begin with to display His grace and His glory among all peoples. Because if you read your Old Testament, the only thing that you can come, with, come away with is that God is a patient and merciful and loving and kind God. Because I would have surely put those people to death just as soon as I got them out of Egypt. But that's not what He did at all. In fact, he tells us in Deuteronomy, I chose you because you were the least. That's why I picked you. You were the most insignificant group of people on the planet. And in order to demonstrate my glory, that's the reason I picked you. So in other words, if you want it to be, back in Romans 9, like 90-something percent of Southern Baptists want to be, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew... 
They want it to be God looked at you and saw something in you, some sort of faith present within you that you would believe. Therefore, He chose you, He predestined you, He called you, He justified you, He glorified you. Not only does that violate the usage of this word in Romans, it violates what Paul has already said in Romans 3. There are none who seek for God. There are none who are good. Yet if God looked upon you and saw some goodness, saw some evidence of faith, you've contradicted everything that Paul's been saying all along. You contradicted what Paul's going to do to Israel. And again, if he's just foreknowing faith, God is not acting and you violated the golden chain because they're all in the exact same tense, voice and mood. This is the action of God. May I suggest to you, inarguably, that this is not a foreknowledge of something you possess. This is a foreknowledge as in the sense that God chose you beforehand for these things. If you want to see the last example that I have, look at chapter 9, verse 11. Here's an example of this. Romans 9, verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, you see in reference to Jacob and Esau. There's foreknowledge at work. You see, before they were ever born, God had already made up His mind who He was going to bring the promise through. Now again, we know who foreknows. It is God. We know what it means to foreknow. But who is foreknown? Well, let's follow through the text. Look at verse 27. Look at the last part of verse 27. Because the, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Look at verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And the same people for those saints, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, it is those whom He knew beforehand in an electing sense. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these same people whom He predestined, He called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. It's really not that difficult. It's just offensive. And I think there's two reasons it's offensive. The first reason is, is because you're all Americans. And we all have a tendency to worship at the altar of freedom. We all like to stand on some unrealistic ideology that we have free will. But what you don't understand, it's the very free will that you have that keeps you from God. It is the very free will in the garden that caused Adam and Eve to deny the Father. They chose for themselves to turn away from the wisdom of God and to trust in their own wisdom. You can have your free will if you want it, but it keeps you from subjecting yourself to the will of the Father. You see, apart from grace, which brings me to my second reason that this is so offensive, apart from grace, there would be no one in heaven. The second argument is, is, is this is not fair. 
If God predetermines or predestines some to glory, that's not fair because He doesn't do it for everybody. Again, you don't understand sin, you don't understand rebellion, and you don't understand depravity. If we get there and see one single man in glory, that's not fair. Because the only thing that we've ever done has been stiff-necked and rebelled against God. The only thing that we've ever done is wanted our own will and not His will. It has nothing to do with fair. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, now I'll talk to you about that not being fair because He had never sinned. That's not fair. You see, if you'll let go of your Western mindset and you'll let go of yourself, you'll begin to understand that if God had not done everything for you, you would have not done anything. I'll give you one more example of why I know that this foreknowledge is not something God saw in you, but rather something that God did for you. That comes in Paul's summary in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? <laughs> it's meant to be a jubilant expression. What, what do we say to these things? Well, if God foreknew some sort of faith in you, I can tell you what you say to these things. Thank God I had faith. But that's not what he answers the question with. What does he answer the question with? What do we say to these things? If, if God, if God, if God is for us. Now let's walk back through the text. Look back up in verse 27. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good. For those whom God foreknew, God predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son. And these whom God predestined, God called. And these whom God called, God justified. And these whom God justified, God glorified. What do we say to these things if God's for us, who's against us? You see, you go through chapter 8 and you haven't done anything. And that's the whole point. That's what he's bringing us to. The understanding that God is the one who glorifies. Now, if you want to change all that and put yourself right in the middle of that and say, God knows something you did. God knew that you was going to exercise faith. Therefore, God went to work for you. You've undone the whole thing. There's no point in this question coming down to 31. And by the way, your hope rests in your ability to have faith. I don't know about you, but I don't want my hope to rest in anything about me. But if it's God who chose me before eternity passed for these things, then my hope rests in God. Because God is the one who's done it. He says, there's but one answer here. And I just gave you the very reason why it's so important that we understand these things. I told you that Paul is trying to ground your hope in order that you might shake death's hand and welcome him as your best friend because the only thing that you want for glory. And you can do that if God has done it all. But you can't do that if it rests on you. Now, back to the text. Let me finish this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is it that against us? Paul wants to answer that and finish this out with two great questions. The first question comes in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
Now, what's so fascinating about that is God is the one we've violated. It is God's law. It's His law that we've broken. So if God is the one who justifies, tell me again, who can condemn us? Because if I've broken God's law, yet God has worked to relieve me from that punishment and justify me. Is there anybody left to point a finger at me in condemnation? And the answer is, are you absurd? If I offended God, and yet God is the one who has released me, of course there's no one else to condemn me. For God himself is the only one who could condemn me. And he has chosen to justify me. Look at the argument. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who in the world is the one who condemns now? Christ Jesus is he who is raised from the dead. Rather, who is, I'm sorry, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who is the one who also intercedes for us. By the way, there's the work that God is continuing to do for you because Christ continues to intercede on your behalf. We still haven't got to anything you've done yet, okay? In other words, Paul says, let's handle this judicial part real quick because he's in a courtroom. And he asks the question, God's justified you. He gave His Son for you. Now tell me, who's going to condemn you? There's nobody left standing. Because He was the only one offended. And rather than condemning us, He's loved us. So there's nobody left to condemn us. And then He comes to the second question, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now let me ask you this question. Why does the judicial part come before the love part? Why does the judicial part come before the love? Because we're talking about biblical love. And biblical love is a selfless action. I saw that sign again this week. Love is love. No, it's not. No, it's not. Not even close. Love is selfless sacrifice on behalf of those who do not deserve. That's why the judicial precedes the love. Now, I'm about to do a wedding here, and i got to talk about biblical love. Biblical love is experienced on the far side of selfless sacrifice. It's not, even though it involves emotions and feelings, it's not that. That's not the primary thing. Love is an action as defined by the Bible, and specifically it's the action of selfless sacrifice on the undeserving. Abby knows this because I've said it for years. Biblical marriage is not love because of. Biblical marriage is love in spite of. Because that's how God has loved us. But then he begins to define this love for us in, this, in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do that? What can do that? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, no, there's nothing that can do that. Just as it stands written, for your sake, Paul writes, and I think he means this in re reference to his apostolic mission because they were persecuted beyond measure. 
He says, for your sakes, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, oh, look at this, verse 37. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. There's something we've done, right? Well, keep reading. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him. I thought I was going to get to do something. I thought I was going to get to overwhelmingly conquer. Well, actually, you don't, unless He does it through you. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced. Now think about your hope. Think about Paul's argument. Then you'll understand this last sentence. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, from the things of God, from what God has done on our behalf. And all of that is found in one place. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I don't know what the Spirit of God will do with that message, but let me give you two things that He's done in my heart with this message as I've studied this. Number one is worship. When I think that He set His affections on me in eternity past, before I'd ever done anything good or bad, and has promised me glory, the only thing I can do is worship. Because I'm going to be the most surprised person in heaven to see myself there. And I will talk much about this is not fair. But it will be in the context of this is not fair that I should be here. To experience all of this love and to be swallowed in all of this glory for all of eternity. When the only thing that I ever did in and of myself was to rebel against God. And demand my will. It should cause you to worship. Secondly, it should humble your heart beyond measure. Who are you? Really? Who are you to know the love of God? Who are you to know these wonderful things? Who are you to experience all these wonderful things? Which brings me to my third thing, response. I mean, really, Paul has set us up that we might live the rest of our lives preaching the gospel, making disciples, looking forward to our last breath. That is literally what he has done. That we might let this world fall behind us. That we might throw the things of this world to the side and run toward glory with eager anticipation. I think that's the real purpose of these passages. That we would worship and serve God with a renewed sense of the wholeness of our life. These are glorious passages. And again, these are the most argued passages in your Bible. And it's so sad what's been taken from us. I hope you're not offended by them. I hope you glory in them. Let's pray.